0: All right, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 tonight. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man... He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." Now we're going to try to get our study from these verses here tonight. And so as we get right into it, we see that John saw that he all of a sudden now, after the the millennial kingdom, which we just spent a few weeks on, he said he saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And look closely at verse 5. The one seated on the throne, God the Father says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And what we're going to do at the beginning of our study tonight is I'm going to take from Scripture and show you that the new heaven and the new earth is not the millennial kingdom. If you do any study of people that try to teach on prophecy, you're going to find a lot of people sometimes get the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth confused. When we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, I'm going to use this other term for it that you'll hear sometimes. It's called the eternal state. In other words, as you've heard from our study, there are these different ways that God has worked in different time periods throughout history, all the way to the point that there's going to be the end of the church age, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, and then there's going to be the thousand-year millennial kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. And then at the end of that, which we saw last time we got together, Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. All the dead are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. And then John says, and then I after that saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this new earth didn't have any sea. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then, he, as we see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. So the earth and the sky during the millennial kingdom will appear new because they'll have been renewed, But since sin will still be on the earth, it must be destroyed to make all things new. And that's one of the important things about why the old earth and the old. When the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth, we get confused sometimes because we hear the word heaven and we just assume that that means where God is. Where God is doesn't have to be remade. When it talks about the new heaven and new earth, it's talking about the fact if you do a study and we're not going to take the time to do that tonight. If you do a study of the word heaven, you'll find that the the Jewish mindset understood that there were three heavens. The word heaven in the Hebrew is shemayim. And it was a a word for what was above the earth. They had this picture like the earth was here and that there was this globe, if you will, a shell over the earth. And the heavens they would use to describe the first heaven is where the birds flew. They knew that above the earth, the birds flew in the heavens. But beyond that, there was another heaven where the stars were. And beyond that was a place they called the third heaven, which is what they called paradise or the presence of God. And so we have to understand that's why when Paul said he knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know, was taken to the third heaven. He was describing how he had been taken in the spirit to go where God is. All right. So when the scripture says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's not talking about a new place where God is. He's talking about what? Here, the skies, what we can see, where the birds fly and where the sun and the moon are. You're going to see that in just a little bit as we go into detail. What we're going to do tonight is just simply use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we're going to take a look and, at some things and just look. And when he talks about the new heaven and the new earth, is he talking about the millennial kingdom? Or is he talking about something after the millennial kingdom? And I'm going to show you that it has to be, has to be, has to be something after The millennial kingdom. Go with me to Isaiah 65 and we'll begin our study and I'll show you this. And you'll see as we go into this a little bit of why there's some confusion. And that's why some uh, prophecy people confuse the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. If you've ever read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, I recommend it. It is a great book. It's a very big, thick book. He does a great job with it. The only problem I've had with his book is this. As in the end of the book, when he starts to speculate as to some answers of whether or not your pet's going to be in heaven and all that kind of stuff, he actually uses millennial kingdom passages to try to describe things in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's where he gets some of his confusion. And part of the problem is he says in the book that even though he's a pre-mill trib pre person, He thinks the Amalimists have some pretty good arguments. He even says that in his book. And so because he's a little bit confused as to what the scriptures actually have to say about what is to come, he gets some passages confused. In Isaiah 65, look at verse 17. Don't read verse 18 yet. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now, by the way, haven't you ever had people ask the question over the years, what's it going to be like when we go to heaven? And what's it going to be like when we're there and we realize our loved ones aren't there? You know, there's going to be a period, I believe, that you'll recognize that your loved ones aren't there. But if we let the scriptures speak for themselves, once we get to the new heaven and the new earth and all the rest of history is done and done with, the Scripture says when he makes the new heaven and the new earth, all the former stuff will no longer be remembered nor even come to mind. But the reason why people get confused is they try to read verses 18 and following into the new heaven and the new earth, because the way we read stuff... It would just flow. It says, behold, I make a new heaven and a new earth. And look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more in it shall be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Wait a minute. Are people going to die in the new heaven and the new earth? No, they will not. Actually, what happened was the prophecy jumped in verse 17 when it was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Verses 18 and following just start beginning to talk about the millennial kingdom and how at that time, if someone dies at 100 years old, they'll be considered accursed. They'll be considered just a baby because people are going to live so long during that time period. Well, people say, Jim, how are you going to know whether or not it's still talking about the same thing or something else? That's why we need to, the Bible says, rightly divide the word. And if you were to do a study, and I can't take the time to turn you, turn you there because there's so much we're going to get into tonight. But if you were to go back and look at Isaiah 61, well, you're only a couple of pages from it. Let me just show you real quick. Isaiah 61, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn." Now if you know Jesus in Luke chapter 4 goes into his hometown of Nazareth, he actually is handed the scroll of Isaiah, he intentionally unrolls it to this spot. Jesus doesn't just haphazardly have it handed to him and he takes it and he unrolls it himself this section, but if you go and you double check me in Luke chapter 4, you'll see that Jesus stops reading in the middle of a verse. He reads verse 2, and this is how he reads, he reads verses 1 and 2, but he reads verse 2 this way, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he doesn't read any more. The Bible says he rolls it up, sits down, and begins to teach and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now folks, let me ask you an honest question. Those of you who understand what's going on here, why did Jesus stop reading? The day of vengeance wasn't until his second coming. Don't miss this. In this one verse, you see there's an and there. It's talking about two different time periods. The first half of the verse talks about his first coming, when he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God is not going to happen until he comes back. Right? Well, guess what? So if one verse here... in in the midst of one verse can talk about two different time periods 2,000 years at least apart. We should not be surprised when we get to Isaiah 65 and see that verse 17 is talking about one time period. Verse 18 and following is talking about another time period. And that's why as we look at scripture, and I'm going to show you some more of this tonight, you need to really look closely at what you're reading and say, okay, according to what we see here in the context and what's being said, what part of time of history is this being referring to? And so when you don't understand that God has different purposes at different times, and you just try to read everything together, you're going to get really confused. But as I've had a lot of people, let me just say this, and then some of those people are going to be listening right now as I say this, I'm getting emails and phone calls from people around the country who are actually listening online to these Revelation studies. People are getting the CDs made and copied and given and they're listening to them while they exercise and different things. And it is so exciting to just tell you how people around the country are saying, for the first time in my life I've understood the book of Revelation. And I will email them back or call them and say, is this the first time you took it literally and put it in order? And they'll go, yes. And I go, when we believe the Bible and let it speak for itself, Revelation becomes very, very clear. But it's an amazing thing to see how many people are getting excited about the fact that the Bible is not confusing. It actually makes sense. That's my role. I've been used, hopefully, by God to help you see these things. But if you're going to fully grasp it, the Spirit has to help you open your eyes. So, verses 18 and following are describing the Millennial Kingdom. But verse 17 says that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things won't be remembered or even come into mind. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verses one through thirteen. Second Peter chapter three, verses one through eighteen. I'm no, sorry, one through thirteen. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So once again, Peter says, folks, how many of you believe that the flood actually happened on the earth and that God judged the whole world? <clears throat> Peter says that God kept the earth until that time when he destroyed everything with the flood. He said the, hev- the heavens and the earth that exist right now are being held in the same way for a day of judgment of fire. And that's going to be at the end of the millennial kingdom After the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Satan's loose from the pit and he tempts those who've been born during that time period to fight against Jesus, Jesus destroys them with the breath of his mouth. They're all consumed. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And the dead are all judged. And then John says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And as we saw from Isaiah 65, when God makes everything new for the eternal state, no more time periods, when he makes everything new for the eternal state, the former things won't even come to mind. It's going to be an amazing, amazing place and amazing time. Go back to Isaiah 66. I want to see if you've been able to track with me just a little bit. Isaiah 66, look at verses 22 through 24. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord... So shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Is Jesus talking about the new heavens and the new earth totally? Is he talking about the new heavens and the new earth and the millennial kingdom or just the millennial kingdom? My daughter Nicole has two fingers up. You are correct. Look closely at what he says. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, he then promises that during the millennial kingdom, so shall your offspring and your name, talking to the nation of Israel, the Jews, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come worship before me, declares the Lord. And they're going to go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me. Remember, the new heaven, the new earth, the former things, will not be remembered, nor come to mind. In this passage, he just says, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth, like he'd already said in verse chapter 65, verse 17. And just as that's going to forever to remain, during the millennial kingdom, you, you Israelites, you Jews, are going to remain before me. All right? So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go through a, a fast, because i got so much I want to tell you tonight, or else we won't finish by June. What I want to do is I want to show you how scripturally the new heaven and the new earth cannot be the millennial kingdom. All right. One of the evidences for this, from this passage back in Revelation 21 that the new heaven and the new earth will be different from the earth during the millennial kingdom is the fact that John says that this new earth no longer has any what? Any sea. There's no oceans anymore. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Go with me real quickly. Keep a bookmark in Revelation 21. Jump back to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47, look at verses 13 through 23. As we saw earlier in our study a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at how during the Millennial Kingdom, the nation of Israel is going to be given a different part of the land of Israel than they did when they first went into it in the time of Joshua. And how we I gave you the handouts that had the maps and how the maps were different between the Joshua inhabiting and the new heaven and the new, I'm sorry, the millennial kingdom time. Look at Ezekiel 47, starting in verse 13. This is how this is dividing the land there during the millennial kingdom. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. And you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side from the, what? The great sea, by the way of Hel- Heth- Hethlon to lebo Le- Le- Hamath, And on to Zedad, Berotha and Sibriam, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, As far as Hazar-Hitikon, which is on the border of Her- Haran. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazoranen which is on the northern border of Damascus with the border of Hamath to the north. This shall be the north side. And on the east side the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus along the Jordan between Gilead and the land of Israel to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea by the way. The Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea and the eastern sea is the Dead Sea, as far as Tamar, this shall be the east side. On the south side it shall run from Tamar, as far as the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt, to the Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. This shall be the south side. On the west side, the Great Sea shall be the boundary to a point opposite Lebohamath hamath This shall be the west side. Do you get the idea? In the Millennial Kingdom, as he's laying out the specific dimensions, there's going to be some seas. So the new heaven and the new earth, in which he saw no sea, can't be the same thing as the millennial kingdom. See, some people try to spiritualize the millennial kingdom as, oh, that's just going to be the new heaven and the new earth, and it's all going to be the same thing. No, they're separate. They have to be two different things. Because here we see that when the nation of Israel's given their inheritance during that time, their sea, Another evidence that what John sees in Revelation 21 is not the millennial kingdom is the difference of the descriptions of the city of Jerusalem. We're in Ezekiel, chapter, go to chapter 48, look at verses 30 through 35. In this division of the, the inheritance of the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom that's laid out here in Ezekiel 47 and 48, in verses 30 through 35, we see the description of the city of Jerusalem. Look closely. Says, These shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates the de- gates of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates the gates of Joseph, the gates of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And by the way, you add up all those 4,500, that's where you get your 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. So here he says, here's what the dimensions of the city of Jerusalem is going to be. Right now, by the way, the circumference of the perimeter, if you will, of the city of Jerusalem is roughly about four miles. At this time, it's going to be about six miles. All right? You with me so far? From the dimensions we see that there's going to be three gates on each side. It's going to be a perfect square, six miles in perimeter. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Look at verses 15 through 17. In a section we're going to get to next time we get together, maybe. It says in Revelation 21, verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square and its length is same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold and so on and like that. Now, look closely. The city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that John sees at the new heaven and the new earth, it's also square. You're going to see when we get to that study, it has 12 gates, just like we see in the millennial kingdom. But the dimensions of the city, you might not understand what I'm talking about here because you might not use stadia very much. It's kind of like when, back when I was a kid, you remember how they told us everything's going to go metric? Does anybody remember that? And how they taught us metric because everything's going metric? I'm so glad everything didn't go metric because I never learned the metric system. It scared me. I didn't, I don't know why. It just, I couldn't understand it. My eyes weren't good enough to look at the millimeter anyway, but 12,000 stadia is one side, okay? That's just shy of 1,400 miles. That is just shy of 1,400 miles. That's just one side. Do you realize that means the perimeter of the New Jerusalem is going to be 5,600 miles? I don't think they're the same city. Do you? Not only that, the Bible says it's as wide and its length are the same, and it's as high as it is wide. Now. I don't know if you've grasped this yet or not, and we'll get into it in more detail when we get to this section, because I can't wait to lay this all out for you, but I'll just give you a little taste. That's almost four times further than the space station is right now. If we were to build that city right now, it would pass the space station three more times. That's how tall that city's going to be. You couldn't even fit it on the map of the U.S. right now without part of it sticking off somewhere. It would not fit on the United States map. It's God-size. By the way, this new heaven and new earth that he's making, it's going to be spectacular. And there's really no need for oceans. The oceans, by the way, right now have a, have a huge purpose in many different ways. As you know, that's where God gets the water to make the clouds and to, to water the earth in that whole cycle that we learned in our, in our early science days. I don't know how many of you ever thought about this, though, either. But also the sea and the oceans have served another purpose over the history of man. They kept us from killing each other sooner than later. If there weren't oceans, back in the day, man would have killed each other long before that. But it's kept us from doing that until our technology got to the point that now with oceans don't separate us as much anymore. There's a whole lot of stuff going on with it. The new heaven and new earth, there's no great oceans. That doesn't mean there's not water. I'll show you later on. The Bible says there's going to be water, there's going to be rivers, and there's going to be some wonderful water. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it's not the same as the millennial kingdom because Jerusalem is only 6,000, I'm sorry, 6 miles in perimeter in the millennial kingdom. In the new heaven and the new earth, it's 5,600 miles in perimeter. Now, again, we'll get a lot more. I want to start teaching on that right now, but we'll have to wait till we get there because there's a lot I want to talk about. Why would God build a city so big? We'll get to that when we get to that, all right? By the way, real quick, though, for you engineers, for you engineers, and I know you got engineers in here, they're like, well, come on, how thick would the walls have to be for a wall to be that tall? Well, the Bible actually tells us how thick they are. 144 cubits. And if you don't know how wide that is, that's 72 yards thick. You engineers that like to do that kind of math, you go figure it out, you'll find out that it's structurally sound to have a wall that high that's 72 yards thick all the way around, it actually would work. But again, I'm jumping into a couple of weeks' study, uh, and let's get back to one for tonight. Another evidence that this new heaven and new earth are not the same as the millennial kingdom is the fact that in the new earth there is no temple. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God the Father's there, the Lamb is there, Jesus is there, and there's no temple in the new heaven and new earth. There's no going to worship at the temple, because God himself is there, there's no temple. Now, real quickly, go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 40, and I'm not going to read to you these verses or chapters, because there's too many. I'm just going to show you the headings. In Ezekiel chapter 40, Some of your Bibles have headings over them. Mine says the vision of what? The new temple that's going to be during the millennial kingdom. In chapter 41, by the way, in chapter 40, you'll see the east gate and the outer court and all that of the the temple. Chapter 41, they describe the inner temple during the millennial kingdom. Chapter 42 describes the temple's chambers. Chapter 43 talks about how the glory of the Lord will come in and fill the temple during the millennial kingdom. Remember, there came a point where the glory of the Lord left the temple that was on the earth. And then, of course, it's been destroyed. There's going to be one rebuilt during the millennial kingdom. There's going to be one rebuilt either during or prior to the the seven-year tribulation period because the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God. So at some point, there's going to be another temple built in Jerusalem. I personally lean toward that that temple won't be the one of the millennial kingdom because there are passages that show that when Jesus comes, he builds the temple. For the millennial kingdom. And actually, the Bible talks about, again, don't have time to get into that. The Bible actually talks about how the Gentiles will help build it. The other nations will come and help build the temple during the millennial kingdom. So during the millennial kingdom, there's gonna be a temple. Look at verse 47, I mean chapter 47. Water starts flowing from where the temple. From underneath the temple, a river is going to start to flow and it's going to head toward the Dead Sea and it's going to turn it into fresh water. And that whole area is going to be an amazing place where there's going to be fish of all kinds, and, and it's just going to be an amazing thing. Folks, in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a temple and Jesus is going to be there. But in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no temple. Can't be the same place. Can't be the same time. Another evidence that the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21 is not the same as the renewed earth of the millennial kingdom is the fact that in the new heaven and the new earth there is no more sun and moon. Go with me real quickly to Revelation 21 look at verses 23 through 25. Revelation 21 verses 23 through 25. In the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There's no need of a sun or a moon, and there aren't any, because Jesus is the light during that whole time. Oh, remember back in Isaiah 66? How he said, just as I'm going to build a new heaven and a new earth that's going to remain before me, so will you also, Israel, remain before me? What? From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. During the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a sun, there's going to be a moon, there's going to be that kind of stuff. But during the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sun and moon, no need of them. Because the light is Jesus himself. Well, I want to give you, well, you've already seen that. Just write it down. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. Lastly, And I mean lastly because of what we're looking at here. There's a lot more before we get to lastly tonight. The last evidence that I'm going to show you tonight that the Revelation 21 is describing something totally new is the fact that in the millennial kingdom, Jesus, the son reigns on the earth and there will still be death. In the new heaven but in the new heaven and the new earth god the father will dwell with man on the earth and there'll be no more death we already read it earlier in isaiah 65 verses 18 and following the one who dies at 100 years old will be considered accursed it'll be i mean because you're going to go live remember back in the time of abraham sorry adam and eve and all those people up to abraham they lived like 900 and something years old we're going to go back to a time period like that where if you die at 100 we're not going to die because we're going to have our new bodies and we're going to rule and reign with jesus but the people that are alive on the earth are going to actually start living a long period of time during the Millennial Kingdom, but there will still be death. But look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isaiah tells us we won't even remember the former things. But look closely. At that point, there will be no more death. We know clearly from Scripture. We even read it in Revelation. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan's released from the pit. He tempts those who have all been born to the humans during that time period. And they come to fight against Jesus. And what happens to them? They die. He just consumes them with fire. But in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no more death. So listen closely. I don't want you to miss something here. Let's not skip over this God dwelling with man. Look at verse three again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I don't want us to miss that because there's something here that I can't wait to show you. We have for years seen going to heaven as going to be with God, haven't we? Haven't we kind of seen that when we go to heaven, we go be with God? And for a time period, it's going to be that way. But that's not the ultimate definition of eternity. I'm going to show you tonight from Scripture that the God's understanding of eternity is not us going to be with Him, but actually Him coming to be with us. When we die now, before the new heaven and the new earth, those of us who are in Christ... Go be with him. But he's going to bring us back with him, right? When he comes to rule and reign on the earth. And we're going to rule and reign with him. And at the end of that time period, everything that's here is going to be destroyed and burnt up. And he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And who goes where? He comes and lives with us here in the new heaven and the new earth that he's going to make. And I just want you to see it from scripture. Go to John 14 verses 1 through 3 and we'll lay the foundation. We have again, because we have not understood that there are some time periods still left. For years, I grew up in a church that taught when you die, you go to heaven, and that was it. I never understood that I was going to actually come back to this earth one day in a renewed form and rule and reign with Christ on the earth. I didn't know that this world was going to be destroyed and eventually there was going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I just assumed that I would die and go to heaven and I go be with God, and that's heaven. But the Bible shows that there's a lot more involved, a lot more still to come. John chapter 14, verses 1-3, through 3, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus says, in my Father's house there's many rooms. Listen closely. We've been taught for years that Jesus is up there preparing a place for us, swinging a hammer and a saw and some spackle. It's not what he's talking about. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. They already exist. When he says, I go prepare a place for you, he said, I'm going to the cross. How did he prepare a place for us in the presence of God? He went to the cross to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. And that's why he cried out on the cross to tell us die. It's finished, paid in full. It's done. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's not up there preparing a place for you. He's already prepared it. He died on the cross for your sins. And he says, in my Father's house, there already exists plenty of space. But if I prepare a place for you, in other words, if my death on the cross covers you, I'm going to come take you to be with me so you'll be where I am. That's the rapture, folks. He's going to come get us and take us to be with him. Go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul's sitting in a prison there in Rome and he says, For me to live, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So again, this understanding of going to be with God is not a bad thing, because that's when we die now, that's what's going to happen. Either if we die before the rapture or if He comes and raptures us, we get to go be with Him. But that's not where it's going to end up. That's not where it ends up. We know and we're going to take the time to look there. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, when Paul describes the rapture, he said, those who've already died in Christ are, already, are with him. And God's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And we who are alive are going to be caught up. Our bodies are going to be changed. And we're going to go be with the Lord. That's the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. But didn't we already read in Revelation chapter 19 that when Jesus comes back, we all come back with him and he sets up his kingdom on the earth? Folks, You're not just dying and going to heaven one day. Yes, you'll go be with Jesus either if you die before the rapture or in the rapture. He'll come take you and we go be with him. But he's coming back here to set up a kingdom on the earth. He has his reasons and his purposes. And for a thousand years, he's going to rule and reign literally on this earth. And we're going to rule and reign with him. And when that time period is over, he's going to destroy the earth that we see. The Bible is very clear about that. It will all dissolve and everything that was before won't be remembered. And he'll make a new heaven, and a new earth, in other words, a different type of sky, different type of earth planet, but it's going to be an actual planet here. I say here, meaning somewhere. And then God is going to come be with us. Isn't that cool? Yes, ma'am. What do you mean what's going to happen with us? While he's remaking the earth? I think he can handle that. I th- do you afraid you're going to have to flap your wings for a long period of time or uh, just, just, just your jaw? You're worried about your jaw hitting the ground while you watch it all happen. Folks, God can just say the word and it be done. We, we might just, you know, have a sneeze and think, good grief, look at everything's different. It, it, we don't have to worry about how it's going to happen. The Bible doesn't tell us, but the Bible says it's going to be dissolved and we're going to live on it. And as again, we'll get into it in more detail in the next few weeks because we're going to really look at the new heaven and the new earth. But go ahead. Mm-hmm. 20, uh, seven, nothing will ever enter it. No one is goes for... this is the new heaven and the new earth we'll get to that a little later we will get to that later maybe not tonight maybe not tonight maybe not tonight but we will answer that question good answer good question go ahead yes. going to be with him. That's it. We're never leaving him. Golden. I love it. Even while he's creating the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to be there. However, well, however he does it, we'll be with him. We go be with him forever and ever and ever. But even when, like you, like you said, when he comes together, the people that are left on the earth at the rapture, the people that have already died come with him. Yeah. Even though they don't come to the earth, they come with him. We join them in the sky and then we go. Kind of cool. I think he kind of likes us. I want you to understand he loves us. Well, let's look at some more though along this line. God's long-term desire, eternal desire is to be with us. I don't think we even let that really sink in. Not that we go be with him. His long-term eternal desire is that we be he be with us. Go back with me to Leviticus chapter 26. How about that? In Leviticus. The book we all start to read when we start in Genesis. We like the stories in Exodus. This is cool. We get to Leviticus and we quit. (laughs) Leviticus chapter 26. Look at verses 1 through 13. God says to the nation of Israel You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an an image of pillar and you shall not set up a figure stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you you, your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing floors, uh, sorry, threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last at the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I'll remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. As he made his promises to Israel, as he brought them into the land, he says, if you'll just listen to me, if you'll just trust me and just do what I say, it's not if you obey my commands. No, it's I said these things because this is best. I have a reason why I'm telling you these things. It's because I made everything, and I know how it works best. And if you would just do what I ask, if you would show that you trust me, because I know you got this problem in you that's called your flesh. I know that there's this guy, Satan, who's tempting you and his minions as well to try to not listen to me. I know that you're living in a world in which not everybody believes in me and not everybody knows me. And the world itself is going to try to pull you away from me. But if you will be faithful and trust that I am who I am and that you believe what I say is best and you'll know that I love you, I promise you, you won't have to worry about anything. I will bless your crops. I will bless your family. I will take care of your enemies. I'll even take care of the wild beasts that they don't even be an issue for you. because I will come and be with you. God's heart's always been to be with us. Go to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, look at verses 26 through 28. God says, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. He's talking about the millennial kingdom here. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Do you see it? It's been God's heart all along. Not that we go be with him that he gets to be with us. That's why at this point God says, now the dwelling of God is with men. Because everything else that has been hindering it will have been removed. I listed those three things just in a second, a little bit ago here. What are the three things that are right now pulling you away from God? Your flesh, Satan, and the world. Daily, we're in a battle, folks. You've got to understand, even though we've been saved, even though we've been redeemed, your flesh is still under the curse. It's still dying. And your flesh is pulling you away from God to not trust Him. That's why the Bible says, trust not. In your own understanding. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your path. We live in a world that doesn't think He exists. They think that He's just a made-up crutch for us to make ourselves feel better. And if He even is there, they make Him to look like what they want Him to look like instead of letting Him be who He is. And the world today is trying to tell you don't listen to the Bible, don't listen to the Word of God. Everybody has an opinion and every opinion is the same and everybody's opinion is right. And then at the same time Satan is still alive and he's allowed at this time to deceive and he's out there doing his work and we're in a bad But at this point, the new heaven and the new earth, there's no more Satan. He's in the lake of fire forever and ever. The flesh has been totally destroyed. There's no human on the earth anymore that's got a human body left. And the world that exists in that new heaven and new earth, guess what? There won't be anybody (laughs) trying to pull you away from God. And that's why God says, now I get to go be with you. Now I get to be with you, which has been my desire all along. By the way, when God made everything at the beginning, what do we see about the relationship between Adam and Eve and God in the garden? He walked with them. He walked with them. He walked with them. He didn't have a place where they, he sat and they came and checked in. He would come walk with them. In John chapter 14, go to verses 15 through 21. I got some good news for you now. We don't have to wait till then. We don't have to wait till then to experience this closeness. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. And that we know, hopefully you understand, that happens when we get saved, baptized in the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Did you catch that? He doesn't say, hey, I'm going somewhere, and you better behave yourself, and if you're good enough, then when you die, you get to go be with me. No, no, no. I'm not going to leave you as orph- orphans, he says. I'm going to come to you. Yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live, and in that day you'll know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Folks, let me don't miss this. The way you know you're saved is you have the Spirit of God. That's it. Not, I believe in Jesus. I love you, but the demons believe they ain't going to heaven. I prayed a prayer. Eh. I could show you places in the Bible where the Bible actually said that the people believed in Jesus, and the Spirit, God would not entrust Himself to them because He knew what was really in their heart. The Bible says the seed falls on the rocky soil, falls on the thorny soil, springs up. Fools a lot of people, doesn't fool God. I was baptized. I love you. Big whoop. Because we're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by faith through grace alone. The Bible says the only evidence that you've truly been born again is the Spirit of God is within you. 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? And the Bible says the evidence of the Spirit of God within us is going to be love, and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self control. That'll be the evidence that the Spirit of God's within us. Not falling over backwards and your eyes rolling back in your head and all this other stuff people try to turn it into. The Bible turns it into very clear understanding that those who are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. And how we know that we're led of the Spirit is, well, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Then he goes and says, If we live by the Spirit, if we've been born again by the Spirit, let us now keep in step with the Spirit and don't. Don't provoke each other and envy one another. Folks, let me just tell you, as a pastor for over 30 years, I have dealt with too many church members who claim to be Christians who spend most of their time criticizing each other, fighting with each other, envying each other, and give no evidence of the Spirit, although they are faithful and committed to the church. The Bible says if there's no evidence that Jesus is in you, you need to make sure whether or not you're even saved. And so, but look at what he says. I'm not going to just leave you here until that day when I come rapture you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I want to come be with you even in the meantime. That's why those who serve me must follow me, Jesus said. In our personal family, we are striving to live our lives in the area of, did God say it? Is this what he's leading you to do? Do you sense his spirit is saying yes or saying no? We don't want to make wise decisions. We want to be people who believe that I think this God has given me peace in this. And he's moving us forward. We're spending time just learning to recognize that he's leading us. And folks, let me just tell you, the evidence of the spirit of God is you will actually be a person in the midst of the chaos who will have peace and joy and love and patience. You don't have to be more patient. It'll just happen as you learn to walk in the spirit. And so I don't have to go any further than that because the spirit of God can take whatever he wants to do and speak to your heart there. Go to John chapter 17. That's one of the things I'm actually working with pastors about right now. We have spent too many years working on teaching people how well, you preach a sermon, but then you've got to give them the application. You've got to tell them how this apply, how to apply this passage. You know, the Bible says that applications, the Holy Spirit's job. If I think that I'm supposed to teach you how to apply this truth, I've just said the Spirit of God can't help you understand it. I'm to preach the Word of God. Application, the Holy Spirit will take care of itself. He'll show you what you're to do. We have weakened the truth of the Word of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God because we've tried to do the work of Christ in the power of the flesh, in man's effort. In John chapter 17, look at verses 20 through 26. This is one of my favorite, favorite places. Jesus is praying there in the garden right before the cross. He says, I don't ask for these only. He had just prayed for the 12 disciples or the 11 at the time. He said, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you and I, Father, sorry, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. He's not praying that we'd be in unity. He's saying that they would have that we would have the same relationship with the Father that he does. Look closely what he says. That though that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. He's clarifying what this oneness looks like. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that also they whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says, Father, I don't want them just to see my glory. I want them to experience the love that you have for me, and I'm going to continue to make it known to them. And how does he do that? When he saves us. He not only erases our sin, he gives us his spirit. And he wants us to learn in the abiding relationship. Right after chapter 14, when he says he's with you, but he's going to be in you. And in that day, you know that I'm going to be in you and you're in me and you're swimming in God. He then goes on in chapter 15 to teach him about the abiding relationship. Folks, I'm just going to just challenge you. Have you ever really let it sink in how much God loves you? See, for years, when I read John 14, verse 15, where it says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my commandments. For years, I focused on trying to keep, my com- keep his commandments to prove to him that I love him. You ever done that? Oh, no. The, the Bible says that if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. So I've got to obey his commandments to prove that I love him. I've been flipping it all around backwards for years. Now I'm not reading it that way anymore. Now I'm focusing on loving him. Because he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. you see the difference? The focus should be, and we get right to you there, when, when the focus should be we love him. And what if, that's why in Galatians 5.16, so I say walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We actually, if we, and by the way, but 1 John chapter 4 says that we only love God because he first loved us. We have to receive his love. And when we really receive his love, you can't help but just respond in love, right? Go ahead. Well, John 6.28, they said, therefore, to him, what shall we do that we may work? Yeah. He said, that's it. There's no works. Just believe. That's it. Folks, I'm telling you, let me give you an example from Mother's Day. Hopefully this Mother's Day weekend, you took some time to honor your moms. And usually what happens is when you do that, you take stock of all that mom did for you and has done, correct? And when you really start to get a real good picture of what mom does for you, you can't help but just respond, can you? And you know. And then, of course, we forget. And we go back to treating her the way we normally do. But 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 on that day, we at least take stock of all mom has done and is doing. And our natural response is we want to do something in return. I'm telling you, I'm going to challenge you. Get up every morning and believe that the one who sent his son to die for you while you're his enemy is for you. And let the truth of the scripture sink into your heart. And I, wo- I promise you, you'll all of a sudden just start flowing out. Joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Stop trying to work at it. Stop trying to do it. Believe that it'll happen. So what keeps us from him? If he's in us and he wants to be in us and he's going to be with us all the way from now on, evidence that he's not going to leave us as orphans, what keeps us from him then? Sin. Sin. But for those of us who are in Christ and he's in us, We're never going to be separated from Him nor forsaken by Him. We know the Bible says that in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. But when we choose to sin, the Bible says that it grieves Him and it quenches His spirit in such a way that we don't sense His continual presence. You know what I'm talking about? There have been times you know that He's right there. There are other times you don't sense His presence. And when that happens, I immediately start doing a sin checkup. Because sometimes God will be silent and I haven't sinned. And he's doing it to teach me to walk by faith. You remember how when the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, they thought he was the one. And they went away on the day of resurrection discouraged, heading back to Emmaus. And Jesus showed up among them. And he kept them from recognizing that he was there. And all he did was teach them from the scriptures. There's going to be times, folks, in your walk with the Lord that you're not going to sense his presence. He's going to keep you from recognizing that he's there, but he's going to use the scripture to teach you to trust him and to walk by faith and believe that what he said. And in time, he will reveal himself to you. And then what does he do? Once their eyes were open, they recognized that it was him. What did he do? He disappeared again. There's going to be times we sense his presence and sometimes we don't. But listen to me. There are also times that we will sense that his spirit hasn't left because he never leaves us, but he's grieved. You ever had that feeling? I know I have. When we sin. The Bible says that we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. I want you to, to write these down, and I'm going to read them some to you real fast in the time we have left here. In, in, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 30. in ver- Ephesians 4, verse 30, it simply says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Again, I know I'm going to be going faster than some of you can follow along with me, and that's okay. Just write them down and look at them on your own. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit, the Scripture says. So these things must be possible. To grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit must be possible. James chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 4, it says, You adulterous people... Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Folks, when we sin, and we all still sin, and you sense that the Spirit of God has been grieved and quenched, you know that feeling. The Bible says all you need do is humble yourself in repentance and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, that is not who I really am. Lord... Thank you that it's already been forgiven. I don't have to ask you to forgive me because you've already forgiven every sin that I've ever committed. But Lord, I receive your forgiveness today and I'm coming back. And the Bible says he runs right in your direction. Well, you want evidence of that? Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and while we walk in the darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some sin. All sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth not in us. But if we confess our sins, agree with him that it's sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his words not in us. Folks, what I want you to understand is is there's some people out there in the church today that saying there's no such thing as sin anymore for the Christian. No, the Bible says there's still sin. And if you say you don't struggle with it and you don't sin, you're a liar. But if we walk in the darkness, we can't claim to have fellowship with God. We don't. Has He left you? No. Has He forsaken you? Impossible. But you've grieved Him. That's why His Spirit within us is jealous when we pay attention to other people, other things, when those things that tempt us are more interest, important to us, or we trust them more or care about them more than we do believing Him. But the good news is, we've already been forgiven of all sin. And if you learn to recognize that time when the Spirit of God is grieved, I, for those of you that understand what I'm talking about, you know how horrible that feels. When you become sensitive to listening to the Spirit, and you learn how to keep what we call short accounts with God, all you need to do is say, Lord, thank you that it's been forgiven. I, I acknowledge that what I've just done is wrong. And if there's something he tells you to do to make it right, go make it right. He will immediately, the Bible says, what? Cleanse you from all sin. And he'll restore to you that joy of your salvation. One last thing, and we'll close with this tonight. Go back to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Hang on for a second. If God says, write this down, because these words are trustworthy and true, Does that mean the rest of the words weren't? No. Remember, the Bible says God cannot lie. So if God who cannot lie says what I'm about to say, write it down because it's trustworthy and true. I think we better pay attention to what he says next. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the others, we're going to deal with that next week as we pick up right here. But let me just tell you this much, and I'll give you a little taste for it right here. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, and it was offered back then, come Buy without any money. Jesus said, write this down because it's trustworthy and true. It's done. It's paid for. It's already been taken care of. Listen to me, folks. The message of the gospel is Jesus has already paid the price for all the sin of the whole world. You just have to receive it. And we're going to lay that all out tomorrow. Tomorrow, sorry, next week as we come back together. We're going to lay that all out. And we're going to get into the next verses about the new heaven and the new earth. There's so much more. I can't wait to show you. But I'm telling you this much, I want you to walk out of here tonight letting this truth sink in. God doesn't want to wait till the new heaven and the new earth to be with you. He's inside of you now. Learn to let that aspect of your relationship be how you learn to relate with him. Watch out for the wackos who turn it into things that are unbiblical. And let the truth of the fact that their father loves you and he's put his spirit within you and he wants to teach you how to walk with him and to follow him. And you will start to experience a Christian walk like you've never had in your entire life. And until then, I'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.